This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen arrives in New York, this despite threats of retaliation from the Chinese Communist regime. Find out more about her first visit to the U.S. since 2019. The Senate has voted to repeal authorization for the use of military force against Iraq. We have analysis on what that means. Heated debate on the Senate floor. Republican Senator Rand Paul blocks his GOP colleagues' efforts to fast-track a ban on TikTok in the U.S. Hear both sides of the argument and the response from some Democrats. Transgender surgery on minors is in the spotlight. A California woman tells the tale of the irreversible surgery she had at just 13 years old. Now she's fighting back. And the UN and the International Narcotics Control Board expressed their concerns over the legalization of marijuana. We find out more from someone who says she's seen the effects firsthand. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, March 30th. And Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen arrived in New York yesterday. It's her first U.S. stopover since 2019. It comes in defiance of threats of retaliation from the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The Chinese regime has warned U.S. officials not to meet with Tsai and has vowed countermeasures to fight back if that happens. The CCP claims self-governing Taiwan is part of its territory despite never having ruled the island. It's threatening to bring Taiwan under its control by force. The White House is urging the CCP not to use the visit as a pretext to step up any aggressive activity around the Taiwan Strait. Here's what Tsai had to say just before leaving for the U.S. Leading Taiwan to the world and bringing the world into Taiwan is an important goal of our administration. External pressure will not hinder our determination to go to the world. We're calm and confident, we'll neither yield nor provoke. Tsai spoke at a banquet for members of the Taiwanese-American community last night. She says Taiwan has made tremendous progress in diplomacy and that its relationship with the U.S. has never been closer. President Tsai is next heading to Guatemala and Belize. Those are two of the few countries that recognize Taiwan diplomatically. She plans to visit L.A. on her return from Central America. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said he will meet with Tsai while she is in the U.S. The meeting is expected to take place in California, but has not been officially confirmed. Taiwan's armed forces say they are watching for any moves from the CCP while Tsai is abroad. And the Senate has voted to repeal authorization for the use of military force against Iraq. Yesterday's vote marks a significant moment as Congress tries to reassert authority in military intervention abroad. Every year we keep these AUMFs on the books is another chance for a future administration to abuse them. War powers belong in the hands of Congress. And so we have an obligation to prevent future presidents from exploiting these AUMFs to bumble us into a new Middle East conflict. Authorization for use of military force gave the U.S. president broad powers to conduct military operations without approval from Congress. Repealing the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of force in Iraq marks a formal conclusion to the conflicts. It's also a symbolic confirmation of Congress's ability to declare war. 
However, some Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, oppose the idea. They say the authorizations give the White House flexibility to respond to threats around the world at a dangerous time. The bill now goes to the House for a vote. Speaker McCarthy has signaled support for it. The White House also said it supports the measure. And now for some analysis and efforts to repeal the military authorizations. We're bringing in an Army veteran and international military strategist. He's also the co-founder and director of Restore Liberty. Retired Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you for joining us today. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Opponents say the repeal would show weakness, especially to Iran, opening the door for the regime to influence the Middle East more. And they say future presidents need to respond to threats quickly. What's your stance on this? Well, I think, uh, first of all, that message of weakness was passed a long time ago when we uh, surrendered and ran in Afghanistan. So we don't have to worry about what that message is. It's, it's a little too late for that. Uh, but I would call this uh, repeal of these, these two specific acts, both for the Gulf War and for Iraq in 2002 now, at least a good start. Uh, and there's more work to be done. And clearly this is not done yet either as far as these two are as they go to the House. But uh, uh, this is a good message. This is the realization of Congress saying that we need to rein in the executive branch and its ability really to unilaterally operate in the Middle East and other areas of the country. So a good start, nowhere near the end right now. There are other concerns that remain in place, though, with the 2001 authorization still in place. Talking about some of the checks and balances and also the public optics surrounding this, why would the U.S. repeal the authorization now, nearly 12 years after Operation Iraqi Freedom formally ended? Well, I think uh, what you're starting to see is a growing movement across this country where people are tired of the endless wars. Now, we go into a place like Afghanistan, and we have very good intentions while we're there. And even George W. Bush specifically said that this was not an opportunity to nation build. We didn't want to do that. But that's exactly what it turned into when we were there for 20 years. I was there for four of those 20. And it, there was a point where we have to decide how long we need to be in a specific country. It, there's a... It's just not worth it all the time, and Afghanistan is one of those examples. And uh, that growing movement is being in, heard in Congress, and it, it's being heard in many of the states as well across the country. And I think this is a, a good sign of uh, reigning in that power of the executive branch and back to where it's supposed to be. I want to delve a little further into this nation building that you're talking about. Advocates say a repeal shows the world that Iraq's democratically elected government is not an enemy to the U.S. and that the country has stabilized. What's your reaction to this? Well, there's some truth in there. And I think that's uh, one of sometimes what we have to realize is that uh, our presence is not is not always good for the growth of a country to to realize its own future. Uh, they have to be Iraq. They don't have to be uh, Iraq that America wants. Uh, our, one of the things that I deal with across the across the world is actually with veterans from a, a multiple different countries. And one of the things that you hear a lot is uh, that these countries are tired of America meddling in their affairs all the time, everywhere you look. And I think it's time that, you know, places like Iraq and, and some other countries where we've been involved, uh, that we step back a little bit and let them develop their way. Because it's not always the, you know, America's way is not always the best way. And sometimes we need to, we need to do that. We just need to step back and say, okay, Iraq, uh, if you're an ally to us, we're gonna step aside and uh, we'll assist in other ways. But it doesn't always have to be through uh, military presence. There are other ways to do this. Colonel, does leaving the authorization on the books pave the way for presidential mischief, like main sponsor Senator Tim Kaine suggested? 
It does. And the fact that uh, the 2001 repeal did not uh, get voted on properly, meaning that it failed, and that it's still in place. That, that is the excuse for the continued involvement of America in the Middle East right now. Uh, repealing the authorizations for Iraq round one and round two uh, formally ends that part of the conflict if it fully goes through. But what it doesn't do is finish the entire process. We have to repeal the 2001 authorization as well that is tied around the global war on terror and specifically Afghanistan, because that's the reason why you're going to see our forces remain stationed in places like Syria. And we have to ask ourselves, why are they there? What's, uh, what's the strategy for us to keep American forces all over the world in these various places when we have plenty of problems going on right here at home that we need to fix first? Yes, it is a balance, and we'll see how this plays out in the House. Retired Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your analysis today. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to join you. Some heated debate took place on the Senate floor between Republican Senators Josh Hawley and Rand Paul yesterday. That was over Hawley's push to ban the popular social media app TikTok in the U.S. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on their arguments and the response from some Democratic lawmakers. Senator Paul on Wednesday objected to Senator Hawley's request for unanimous consent to fast-track a ban on TikTok in the U.S. They say, oh, the app's full of propaganda and your young people will be dancing into communism. Well, go to the app and search for Falun Gong. Go to TikTok and search for videos advocating Taiwan's independence. Criticism of Chinese President Xi Jinping. Videos are all over TikTok that are critical of official Chinese positions. That's why TikTok is banned in China. Lawmakers have expressed concerns over the app's influence through its algorithm, what is selectively shown to users. Paul says that all social media platforms collect user data. Do you want to protect privacy? Why don't we start by protecting our own privacy in this country? Paul says the Constitution prohibits bills of attainder. That's a bill against a specific person or company. He objected to Hawley's request for a roll call vote on the legislation. He says to have faith that Americans are smart enough to hear bad ideas and reject them. Have faith that our desire for freedom is strong enough to survive a few dance videos. Paul says a U.S. ban on the app would be infringing on the First Amendment rights of 150 million Americans and that people should just stop using it if they don't want their data collected. Senator Josh Hawley disagreed and cited national security concerns. A senator from Kentucky can watch as many dance videos as he wants. I have no objection to that. Could watch them on this floor for all I care, fine. What I object to is the Communist Chinese Party using this app on Americans' phones to spy on Americans without their consent. The senator says that Americans can simply not use this app, just turn it off. That's not the case. Hawley says the app spies even when it's not being used. It tracks your keystrokes all the time. He suggested TikTok has been showering money to lobby politicians. I have never before heard on this floor a defense of the right to spy. I didn't realize that the First Amendment contained a right to espionage. Some Democratic lawmakers say they want to see a broad policy to address the issue, not just targeting TikTok, but other big tech firms as well. We absolutely need to have privacy laws. You know, we have to have privacy laws. And you can't just ban one company, even though TikTok is a major problem. You can't just ban a company. You need to have a comprehensive uh, privacy law. You ban TikTok next week, there will be TikTok too the week after. It's not just TikTok, but it's American companies as well. And it's now time for us to put that comprehensive privacy bill of rights on the books. 
Senator Joe Manchin says he supports a ban on TikTok, but prefers an alternative bill over Hawley's. The one that makes all the sense in the world is a bipartisan one that basically Mark Warner and John Thune, Democrat and Republican, is a bipartisan. It does a job and illegally, and it'll, it'll, pass, it'll pass the test of the courts. Hawley has vowed to continue efforts to pass the ban. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up after the break, a young woman who had her breasts removed at 13 is now suing the hospitals and doctors who are responsible. The UN and the International Narcotics Control Board express their concerns over the legalization of marijuana. We find out more after the break. Welcome back. Kentucky passed a law on Wednesday preventing minors from accessing transgender procedures. The move makes Kentucky the 11th state in the country to ban such procedures for minors. It is also the 8th state to do so this year. The law bars children under 18 from accessing transgender surgical procedures. It also prohibits puberty blockers and hormone therapies. The new state law also bans public school teachers from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity up to the 5th grade and blocks students from using restrooms and locker rooms that don't reflect their sex. State lawmakers overrode a veto by Kentucky's governor to pass the law. Now we hear from a California woman who once identified as transgender. She had both of her healthy breasts removed when she was just 13. She later regretted the decision and is now suing those responsible. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Layla Jane experienced a lot of mental health issues from as far back as she can remember. I experienced suicidal ideation from a really young age, like first grade, ever since I understood the concept of death. I would sob so hard sometimes as a young child, I would start throwing up and gagging. She also felt different from the kids around her. Yeah, um, I felt a really strong disconnect from other girls. Um, I still do. Um, I just didn't really feel like one of them. I kind of felt this way though about boys too. Um, I didn't really feel like one of them either. Having seen stories of famous transgender people like Caitlyn Jenner online, Layla decided to visit a therapist at a transgender clinic when she was 11. And she really just kind of sat back and said, okay, you're not the first trans person to come through my office. You're not going to be the last. You know, this is normal. This happens. Um, and she really just affirmed. Um, she didn't ask any meaningful questions as a, why do you feel like this? Why do you want to make these changes? What prompted this? Is there something underlying? Maybe there's some underlying trauma that could be fueling this. Layla was given birth control pills to stop her menstruation and was eventually referred to Dr. Susan Watson at the Kaiser Permanente Transgender Clinic in Oakland. And um, she got the ball rolling um, for me to get on puberty blockers. Um, eventually testosterone and eventually a double mastectomy. Layla says little attention was paid to her mental health. I had nobody else looking at the mental side of things. Um, I didn't have consistent therapy with um, the local therapist. That wasn't required, so I just didn't do it. She says she had a couple of appointments with Dr. Watson, who did discuss the long-term effects. You know, I was a child, and I don't think I really fully understood the permanence and everything. I mean, you don't let a kid at that age smoke, drink, get a tattoo, vote, drive. But I was allowed to do that. 
Layla suffered nerve damage, multiple other side effects, and faces possible infertility. She no longer identifies as transgender. Her legal team is accusing her medical providers of grossly and recklessly breaching the standard of care and failing to adequately assess and treat her complex array of mental health symptoms. They're also accusing Kaiser Permanente of coercing Layla and her parents with the threat of suicide. NTD reached out to Kaiser Permanente but did not receive a response. We asked Layla if she has any advice for those in a similar situation as she was. Really, just to slow down, um, make sure you get your mental health checked. Um, there's no rush to do this. You know, I've met so many people who transition as adults and they're honestly, if anything, more passable, they're happier, they're more mentally stable because they made this choice as an adult. Layla says she has no interest in seeing fewer trans people, but she would like to see less people who have to detransition, adding that it's not an easy route. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The FDA has approved over-the-counter Narcan nasal spray. This will become the first opioid treatment drug to be sold over-the-counter. The Narcan nasal spray is the best-known form of naloxone. It's developed by Emergent Biosolutions. It can reverse opioid overdoses. That includes street drugs like heroin and fentanyl and prescription versions including oxycodone. Over 100,000 Americans die from drug overdose each year. Advocates argue that making naloxone more widely available is a key strategy to control the overdose crisis. Narcan will become available over-the-counter by late summer. The drug maker has not announced its price. It's not yet clear whether health insurers will cover it. The drug is currently distributed to police and other first responders nationwide. And the UN and the International Narcotics Control Board expressed their concerns over the legalization of marijuana this month. They say the drug has not been adequately studied and are warning that legalization is leading to higher use and negative health effects. We spoke to a mental health therapist who says she's seen the effects firsthand. Joining me now for more is Amira Martin. She's the founder of Amira for her. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, first, I want to talk about a recent report that came out uh, by the International Narcotics Control Board. It says that the legalization for non-medical use has basically caused negative health effects and psychotic disorders. Now, could you please give some more insights into this finding? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things that we've learned is that when people use marijuana, there's sometimes an acute reaction, and that acute reaction can be anxiety, depression, a psychotic episode. And there's also a, a physical reaction to it where people can get sick. Now for people who have an underlying mental health issue, the response can be that they become mentally ill where that may not have happened or ha it happens a lot sooner than it would have had they not used marijuana. And you said you've seen the impacts firsthand. Could you please share your experiences? Absolutely. So there was a point where I worked in a psychiatric emergency room at North Central Bronx Hospital, and we would have clients come in with acute reactions from marijuana. So clients who, you know, had no mental health issues, no serious cognitive issues at all. And after ingesting marijuana, smoking marijuana, they would come in and they'd be hearing voices or they'd feel extremely paranoid. And then for others, it was kind of like they'd report this sort of out-of-body experience, like they felt they weren't really alive or weren't really present. The good news is that 
those effects wear off in people who don't have an underlying uh, genetic predisposition to psychosis or mental illness. And it also will go away for, for most people. But if, for those who do have that genetic predisposition and for those who do have an underlying mental health issue, it exacerbates it. So it's a really frightening experience for the people who go through it. Mm. And there are many saying that marijuana legalization is actually moving faster than the research on health impacts. Now, um, what, be, could, what could be the repercussions of this? And do you have, do, what's your stance on that? Yeah, honestly, I really think that overall, marijuana is not healthy to use. I mean, between the mental illness and the acute reactions to, you know, the other reactions for people with mental illness, the fact that it's not filtered, right, and it's not regulated the same way that other substances are, you know, the rate of lung cancer has gone up and other cancers have gone up as a result in part of marijuana use. That's some of the preliminary studies have been showing that. I really don't think it's a useful thing to do. I can understand it in terms of like people who need end of life care as maybe part of alleviating their suffering if they're already dealing with end of life issues. But I really don't think it's a good, a good substance for other people. Mm, very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Amira Martin. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Coming up, an ultra-rare Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton will be up for auction in Switzerland next month. Find out what experts say it will fetch. And NASA scientists have detected a gamma-ray burst of epic proportions, possibly unlike any other witness before. But where does it come from? We have more for you after the break. Welcome back. We're going over to Switzerland now, where the skeleton of a giant Tyrannosaurus rex was introduced to the public yesterday. It will be the third T-Rex skeleton to ever be put up for auction worldwide. Let's take a look. Standing at nearly 13 feet tall and at a length of nearly 40 feet, the giant skeleton will be up for sale next month. The giant carnivore was named TRX-293 Trinity, based on its scientific designation. The name of uh, this um, skeleton is uh, Trinity because it's built up out of three individuals and uh, all were found in the US. More than half of Trinity's original bones come from three T-Rex specimens excavated between 2008 and 2023 in Montana and Wyoming. The remainder is made from artificially produced plaster and epoxy resin casts to replace bones that could not be found. According to the museum's director, the process can take up to 10 years. Over 10,000 hours of work go into such a skeleton. So you can imagine, and when you start this out, there's no guarantee that you, that you end up having a, a complete dinosaur. In fact, the chances that you find nothing is, the, <laughs> is very big. According to Dr. Zieber, only 32 skeletons of adult dinosaurs have been found worldwide. Trinity is expected to fetch between five and a half and eight and a half million dollars. By contrast, two other T-Rex models that have been discovered in North America fetched nearly eight and a half and 31 million respectively. Cost MNS, NTD News. Okay, eight and a half million, that's a price tag. Are you gonna save up for it? 
Maybe not myself, but it would be cool decor for our station. <laughs> oh yeah, a little decor <laughs> around here. And did you see those teeth? Man, ferocious. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and NASA is studying one of the most powerful classes of explosions in the universe. This particular one is being called the boat, brightest of all time. Tuesday, the space agency announced it clocked a gamma ray burst in October of last year that was unlike any other. Scientists say the pulse of intense radiation was so exceptional that it blinded most of the gamma ray instruments in space. They believe a gamma ray blast like this one is so rare it only happens once in every 10,000 years. It triggered numerous detectors on spacecraft and observatories around the globe, on the International Space Station, and even Voyager 1 in interstellar space. Astronomers believe gamma-ray bursts come from the formation of black holes. NASA's James Webb and Hubble Space Telescopes searched for the supernova that usually follows long bursts, but they believe the entire star was swallowed up by the black hole instead of exploding. Wow, what a sight. So this could be the brightest gamma-ray burst human civilization has ever seen. Oh man, what a discovery. I know, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> That's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you. As usual, you can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.